0: The answer.
2: Yes, indeed, it is. And a good morning to you. Thank you for joining. Clock. Thanks for joining us on AM fourteen twenty. The answer this Tuesday, the thirteenth morning of the eighth month of the year of our Lord twenty nineteen. Really, really important information. Great discussion in the first hour. It's going to get even better now. How do I know that? Because of the presence of our next guest. Peter Kersenow is the host of the Kersenow Report on AM 1420, The Answer. He is also a Cleveland attorney. He's also a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. He's also a best-selling author and contributing columnist to the National Review. I think I have them all. Peter Kersenow, good morning. And before you start talking, I am going to tell you what you already know. And I'm going to say this, that on June 2nd, the Cleveland Indians were 11-and-a-half games out of first place, and you were not giving us the countdown to the start of the World Series. Here on August 13th, they're in sole possession of first place, coming back from 11-and-a-half back to a half-game lead. So my question to you, good sir, as you start your commentary, is it time to start reminding us when the World Series starts?
3: Well, it's past that time. You may remember last week, Bob. I was on the verge of doing just that, and you told me not to jinx it. So I'm, I'm not going to jinx it until after the Yankees series. I will say, however, it's only 26 days until the Browns' first game. I'm sure Baker Mayfield is feeling dangerous. The opposite of uh, Fredo Cuomo, by the way, who I'm not sure what he's feeling, but uh, somebody got under Fredo's skin there. I have a feeling that this is something that's really touched a raw nerve. He's heard that statement several times before. But um, things are looking good for uh, the Indians. 24 games more, put this way, in order to make that comeback, they have won 24 more games during that span from June 1st to the present than has the Minnesota Twins. Hottest team in baseball. I have to admit that probably, I mean, hard to concede, but you have to look at it on paper. Houston's got the best rotation in baseball right now. But if Kluver comes back, You know, if Kluber comes back, I think we're competitive. And with the addition of um, Reyes and Puig, the wild horse, with Kipnis hitting the way that he did before he had the abdominal injury three years ago and Ramirez is back to form, I like our chances.
2: Yeah, I do, too. I, you're right. I think uh, Houston has to be the prohibitive favorite in the American League, if not uh, all of baseball, to win the World Series. But, yeah, the way they have played over the last – it's not just a hot streak. It's two-plus uh, months of tremendous baseball, two-and-a-half months, uh, really all through June and July and now half of August, and uh, I really like it, too. All right, Pete, um, you and I spoke before the show, as we always do, about what we're going to talk about, and um, it's interesting. The two things that you wanted to hit on are white supremacy and Ferguson – because we are just now a few days removed from the fifth anniversary. It was this past Friday, the five-year anniversary of the uh, shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, which led to the birth, essentially, of the Black Lives Matter movement and the Ferguson effect as it pertains to policing, particularly in large urban centers. Ironically, those were the two topics that we had on this uh, network or this station yesterday. P- uh, Hugh Hewitt spent virtually his entire show talking about white supremacy and how Donald Trump and his supporters and his voters are not that and the Democrats' desperation to pivot from Russia, 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 which is a loser, to racist, racist, racist. If you vote for him, what does that say about you, white supremacist? So that's what Hugh did all day yesterday, and I did the Ferguson show all day yesterday. I want to give you an open forum now. We'll start with the former, the white supremacy, um, and the accusations that the left has just decided we're not going to question it anymore. We're going to state it. We're going to label him a racist. Uh, We're going to do it every time we take the stage or a microphone or a television cameras around. And we're going to declare anybody who votes for him, which is what Robert Francis or work did, to be the same. We will shame people into voting for the Democrat or not voting for all. Go ahead and take that from that jumping point.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, and that was a very good lead-in, Bob. What we see very often with progressives is, well, if they didn't have the Russia narrative, which is something that, I mean, they were like a dog with a bone with that one for the longest time. They still are from time to time. But uh, I think even everyone not named uh, uh, Nadler thinks that that dog won't hunt anymore. But nonetheless, the for Russia, for who knows how many election cycles, it has been a theme of democrats to talk about racism constantly they're always talking about racism and there's a number of reasons for that you know even before trump uh, one of the reasons is because it is imperative as we've discussed several times before it's imperative for the democratic party to get at least 90 percent of the black vote if they don't get 90 percent of a black vote in a national election they don't have any hope of winning i did a study years ago um for national review, this is almost 20 years ago. I don't have it in front of me and I don't have the exact percentages, but for the last 35 or 40 years, the Democrats have not gotten more than I think it was 38% of the white vote. And if they don't get an overwhelming number of the black vote, they don't have any chance of prevailing. So they've been playing this card over and over and over and over again, exacerbates racial tensions in the process of doing so. But then they found out something else. Um, during the 2000 and, um, 16 presidential election, you know, they thought, well, um, Hillary Clinton is poised to get 90% plus of the black vote again, same as Barack Obama did, or very close to what Barack Obama did, and other Democratic candidates who have prevailed in the past but the problem they found out was that Barack Obama got a significant turnout also he got 90 percent plus of the black vote but also there was a larger black turnout and Clinton didn't produce a large black turnout so the Democrats now know they've got to somehow gin up the black vote to not only just vote in high percentage for a Democratic Party but in large numbers they've got to get the numbers out so that's one of the reasons one of the reasons they can Keep going back to white supremacy, racism, racism, racism. They call everybody in the world racist, and, you know, with no bearing whatsoever. We know that now. And it's kind of boring. One of the changes, one of the other changes to it, however, is the frequency with which they do it, but also that the media has become even greater enablers of this. They don't question anything related to the presumption is that Donald Trump and all of his supporters are racists. They have no reticence whatsoever about saying that, just blatantly. There's not even a discussion about it. If you watch CNN, MSNBC, I try not to, but every once in a while, just to educate myself as to what they're doing and what what they're up to, and there are no surprises of course when I do it, I'll flick it on to see what's going on there and you know it's the same thing nothing has ever changed there and one uh, strike that one thing has changed and that is uh the cnn's msnbc's and the politicians have in the past refrained from calling the rank-and-file voters of the republican party or conservatives racist on a regular basis but now as you just indicated Beto work and others Hosts on MSNBC, on CNN, have just flat out called uh, what Hillary Clinton called the deplorables racist and right. presume that uh, everything and everything they do is motivated by racism, not patriotism, not safety for their family, not of any legitimate concerns about uh, civilization and society, but that they are motivated by white supremacy. Now... Uh, I've said this before, I think to you, Bob. I'm not sure if I've said it on the radio, but I have been on the Civil Rights Commission for a long, long, long time. I'm the longest-serving member on there. I don't miss too much that's on the commission. Uh, within a short period of time, I'll be the longest-serving member in, in the history of the Civil Rights Commission. And so, congratulations I see- in advance, by the way. Oh, well, the uh, condolences are probably better in order, but uh, I, <laughs> okay. I have, I've seen the data on this, and I, I pay close attention to the data. And as I, I like to do, Bob, for your audience, which is great, and whenever I go out and I speak to uh, uh, groups out there, they always talk about our discussions on the Bob France show, and they're armed with some of the information that we impart to them, and here's some of it. So, so for your friends out there and our friends, both of our – we have a number of mutual uh, friends out in your audience – that go out there and they fight the good fight on a regular basis. They may be in a group of people, a casual group of people, maybe these aren't uh, people who are steeped in politics, but people who may have misconceptions based on the fact that they kind of innocuously listen to mainstream media and some of the stuff kind of, you know, just kind of by osmosis they accept some of the things that the mainstream media is saying, and the data points that audience members need to understand, um, I, I don't mean to say that presumptuously, I know they understand this, but a couple of things that are useful one is with respect to white supremacy we hear this constantly as if there is some breakout of rampant white supremacy and white nationalism throughout the country and it's baffling to me because I sit on my couch sometimes in the evening, and I'm listening to these people talk about white supremacy this and white supremacy that, and everybody's a white supremacist, and it's the most dangerous thing in the history of the world. And I don't want to diminish any kind of extreme ideologies and the, and the kind of impact it can possibly have on uh, you know our safety and also the national discourse, but again, perspective. Um, I haven't seen any data that shows an increase in the number of individuals who align themselves with white supremacist ideology or the number of organizations. Uh, If we had more time, I could go through in greater detail, but I want to give some just basic data points that prove this, I think, beyond a shadow of a doubt.
2: Please, yes.
3: Um, Right now, uh, the biggest white supremacist group has always in our nation's history been the KKK. All right. They still are the biggest white supremacy group in the country. There are, by most estimates, FBI stats, all the other uh, studies that are done on this, probably about three to four thousand Klan members. in the entire United States in 2019, three to four thousand of a nation of 330 million. Okay, now these are people with poisonous ideology, but three to four thousand. In contrast, in perspective, in 1930, the population of the United States of America was approximately one third of what it is right now. One third. Yet there were 4 million Klan members at that time. The state of Indiana alone had 240,000 Klan members. Again, what that means is in 1930, there were more than 1,000 times more proportionately Klan members than there are today. In Indiana alone, there were 60 times more Klan members proportionally than there are today in the entire country. This is nuts on steroids when they talk about this stuff. If you look at incidents of hate crimes, and you and I have talked about this before, this is something else where I've got the repository of data on this, and I've written about this on National Review. With respect to hate crimes, you've got the Beto O'Rourke's and other brain dead individuals out there. And I say that, I generally try not to be pejorative of these people, but if they're going to say things that are so toxic to the public discourse and say things that are so fundamentally stupid, then I'm going to call them out as that. Beto O'Rourke seems to think that white supremacy is the greatest scourge in the land, and he talks about Donald Trump and his voters and people who support him as being white supremacists, as being racists. Beto worked by saying that, doesn't understand, because he's not bright enough to get it, that that statement in and of itself is racist. He's making a presumption based on somebody's skin color that they're going to adhere to a particular ideology. What he doesn't get is that hate crimes in America... The one group that, that commits hate crimes at the lowest rate are white Americans. I hate to burst his bubble, and the bubble of all those who assiduously try to avoid these kinds of facts on MSNBC, CNN, ABC, CBS, and be, all of them, is that in the, in the city of New York, for example, I'll, I'll just kind of go into a uh, on a tangent here, in the city of New York, There are uh, the greatest number of hate crimes are committed against Jews by far. Forty one percent of all hate crimes in New York City are committed against Jews. Anti-Semitism is a problem in terms of hate crimes in the country. All right. Right. Thankfully, it's not one with huge numbers, but it's a problem. If there is any kind of an increase, it's with respect to anti-Semitism by a giant margin, it's more likely that the perpetrators of those hate crimes are black New York City residents, not white New York City residents. The the problem with the entire narrative is it breaks down when you actually look at the numbers. Blacks are 200% more likely to commit hate crimes nationally than white's. In fact, if you were to look at any kind of ideology that has a, it may have an impact on whether somebody is harmed or, or shot uh, because of the, the perpetrator's motivation, it's black. It's it's black nationalist ideology that has actually more victims than white nationalist ideology. I'm simply going by the numbers, but apparently the folks on MSNBC, CNN, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera can't count or won't count. I believe it's in the latter category. Well. Maybe Fredo can't count. But I think a <laughs> lot of these folks, they, right. they know the facts, but they refuse to talk about them because they have an affinity for the ideology of Elizabeth Warren, you know, Harris, all these folks. And they have chosen sides quite blatantly, so they don't have any problem smearing an entire class of Americans. And yeah, that I harms see. public discourse.
2: Pete, let me jump in because i got to get our break here. I want to say two things. First of all, we're going to follow up on this with a discussion of Ferguson and its fifth anniversary and how the two stories tie together. They do. And second of all, this is just a great example. Our mutual friend Larry Elder tweeted last week, and I retweeted it, and I think you'll appreciate it. Do you really think that every two or three houses – in the inner city have burglar bars on their doors and windows because the homeowners are trying to keep out white supremacists? <laughs> Who are they really worried about? So that's just, that's a, it's a great point. He also uh, did, Larry, point out uh, statistics, as you often do. Every year there are 400,000 black, white, interracial, violent crimes. Murder, attempted murder, rape, manslaughter, assault with a weapon. 85% of those 400,000 are black perp, white victim. Blacks right. still kill two times as many whites as whites kill blacks. And they are 13% of the population. But, hey, let's talk white nationalism. So just some facts out there for people. I I abhor white nationalism or white supremacy or racism as much as everybody does, and I know you do too. But let's get the facts out there. Peter Kirsten, I'll back with us after this on AM 1420 The Answer. All right, 1026. we got a short segment here with Peter, and then we're going to come back on the other side of the news uh, with a little bit more on this. Uh, but Pete... I mentioned a moment ago, I told you you know, on yesterday's show, I did the entire show on Ferguson because of the lies told by Elizabeth Warren, Kirsten Gillibrand, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Robert Francis O'Rourke, and more. They all told varying stories on Friday, the fifth anniversary of Michael Brown's shooting, of Michael Brown being an unarmed teenager who surrendered with his hands up and was murdered in cold blood by a racist white cop on the streets of Ferguson. They told that lie literally in those terms, Pete. And it was time to go back and look at three autopsies. It was time to go back and look at four different investigations, including the federal investigation by Barack Obama's Department of Justice, headed up by Attorney General Eric Holder, who was given one job, go to Ferguson and find a way to convict Darren Wilson of civil rights violations, if nothing else. They turned over every stone they could, got every witness, every piece of evidence, and could not, and cleared Darren Wilson. Why are they going back and doing this now? And I think you just covered it in your, in your last, uh, in your last segment, Pete. Um, there are black votes to be had here. And, and creating the white boogeyman, including in the form of racist cops, is a great way to get more black votes to the Democratic candidates.
3: Right. And especially during the primaries. Again, going back to what I said previously, it's despicable that they would inflame racial animosity for the purpose of getting some type of electoral advantage. I mean, it, it, it's just despicable because people are harmed by these kinds of things. I don't, I'm not saying what they say, that is, that Donald Trump inflames his voters and they go out and they do crazy things and stuff like that. I'm saying that these guys are creating greater racial animosity and enmity in the United States of America And exaggerating it in order to have political gain. If you take a look at the Democratic primaries, if you don't get a significant share of the black vote, if you're a Democratic candidate, you're dead. You're you're toast. It's not going to happen. That's why right now Joe Biden is the leader, because he's getting the lion's share of the black primary vote. Um, Kamala Harris, strangely enough, is only getting about one or two percent. She had been about 20 percent and then dropped. Uh, Elizabeth Warren's getting a very small share. So you're hearing from the folks that are more desperate to increase their proportionate share of the black vote in the Democratic primary. Again, it represents anywhere between 35 to 40 percent, 35 to 40 percent of the Democratic primary vote. So they have to go, meaning the Democratic candidates, and because it's such a large field, they've got to go absolutely below they believe on um, perpetuating a narrative that they believe appeals or motivate black voters or cause black voters to think that hey I'm on your side and because these candidates I mean this is traditional this is stereotypic racist type of appeals they believe that the only way to believe, uh, to appeal to black voters is to um, inflame them with racial um uh, appeals of this sort that that is like the most despicable form of racism they don't get called out on it of course because the media's all in their pocket but nonetheless this is what they're up to so uh, joe biden as long as he has a significant share of the black vote i doubt he's going to get quite as aggressive with respect to this inflammatory appeal, as some of the others that are more desperate to increase their share. I, I, I would predict that in the next few debates or next few weeks, you're going to see especially a Kamala Harris, who she thought, you know, I'm the intersectional queen here, uh, would be getting a far larger share of the black vote and position herself a lot better. Uh, Elizabeth Warren knows that simply on a mathematical basis, she simply can't have the elite, white, educated, um, Progressive vote uh, there's just not enough of them, so she's got to make some of these appeals also but you've seen it throughout the entire democratic field um, but it's it's something that has Uh, been multiplied. It's exponential during the Trump era. And the media has completely abandoned all objectivity, as we know, and they simply pronounce that Trump and, by extension, his supporters are racist. And Bob, I think you and I have had a discussion in the past where I think this backfires because I think Trump supporters feel a solidarity and a kinship with Trump because they believe that they've been attacked. And as long as Trump supports them, and if they, as long as Trump stands by them, as opposed to George W. Bush, who never defended himself, and what he never got was, it's not about him. The attacks on him were a proxy for an attack, attack on we deplorables, and we felt as if he wasn't defending us. Whereas with Trump, you get the feeling he is defending us, and not just defending us, sometimes he throws the first punch. I think it's sometimes a different it's a time. Punch.
2: Uh, but, Pete, I think it's a different time than it was in the, in the 2000s, uh, because I, I respected George W. Bush for not getting down in the mud with those who would do this. But this was a different time. Or that was a different time than today. If he tried, if President Trump tried that approach, he would be buried by that mud. It is very different what they are doing to him. He has no choice but to fight back for himself and, as you say, for his supporters. Completely agree. Peter, hold that thought. We'll pick it up after the news on AM 14. 14- Twenty, the answer. Don't try All right, it's ten thirty-seven. We are blessed with one more segment from Peter Kirsanow on AM fourteen twenty, the answer. We're talking about white supremacy. We're talking about the politics of race in the twenty twenty presidential election. And yes, looking back to five years ago, this past Friday, to Ferguson, as the uh, leftist uh, candidates for president. Uh, are going back and revising history in order to once again gin up anger among the Black Lives Matter movement against white police officers and thus, uh, essentially, white people who vote for Donald Trump. They are all racist. They are all in the same bag. Um, Pete, you have talked in great uh, detail in the past about the Ferguson effect uh, of policing. You have had numbers. Your commission uh, has, uh, has has put out stats uh, on this as well, or you have uh, in working with the commission. That was in 2015 and in 2016 and in 2017, in 2019, and I'm not asking you for fresh numbers, but is there any evidence whatsoever uh, that would suggest we are not still suffering from, and not we, primarily minorities in inner city communities who are the victims of so much of this inner city crime? Um, is there any abatement of the Ferguson effect or are they still suffering? Yeah.
3: It's, uh, you know, and, and you you put that very well, it's um, still too early to get good numbers on this because the FBI data on this usually is a year, comes out about a year after uh, the given year that uh, they survey. So we probably won't get good data, but to the extent we have data in the last year or last two years, what we see is there's still an echo effect from Ferguson. Uh, that hasn't abated at all. So this is, you know, several years now in the running. But in addition to Ferguson, I think it's continued to be perpetuated by some of the things that we see in other communities. For example, in Baltimore, Baltimore is a very good example of this because after the Freddie Gray incident and then uh, the riots there, and then the uh, the mayor of Baltimore, I think her name was Stephanie Rawlings, remember yeah. she made that famous statement about giving people space in which to destroy, uh, and they had a they had a policy of having Having the police withdraw. Well, that just destroyed morale, but more importantly, it emboldened the bad guys, and it's gotten worse and worse and worse. And you've seen some of the stats of Baltimore over the last two years after Freddie Gray. It's it's just appalling, the, the rise in crime, and especially violent crime there. And there has been a withdrawal of police kind of generally, mainly because they've been told to withdraw by certain politicians, but also because, look, it is a natural human tendency that good police officers who put on the uniform every single day, go out there to do good and prevent crimes and and apprehend bad guys, that they're going to be, they're going to think for a millisecond twice, and sometimes that's a good thing, but they're going to think before taking a certain action because they don't want to end up like some of the the poor officers that you see from time to time who are dragged before grand juries and uh, you know subjected to all forms of abuse, later to be acquitted, um, because you have the... Kamala Harris's and Elizabeth Warren's and Beta O'Rourke's of the world demanding a pound of flesh from police officers whose only aim or main objective is to make sure that their communities are safe and that they do their job. You know, and they, yeah, they want to get home safe also. But at the end of the day, we've seen too many occasions in which you have sacrificial police out there to serve a political agenda and it's made things demonstrably worse. For the black community in many cities, um, Baltimore is one example chicago's Chicago's a flat out in certain sections on the west side and south side It's it 's no more than a war zone it's, i don 't know if that you have heard the tapes bob i 'm sure some of your listeners have of some of the gun battles there. They have police audio of one of the gun battles that occurred. It was last weekend or the weekend before, and It was extraordinary. It sounded like the streets of Beirut in 1981. It was just this constant gunfire. And in a situation like that, you know, we have these cities that have been in democratic hands for decades, and they've got continually worse. They have not gotten better. They have gotten worse. They've, the, the Democrats have been going around calling people racist and white supremacists supremacist forever and ever, and has not made anything any better. It's gotten worse. And then when someone finally says, as President Trump did, hey, why don't you clean up your own backyard? Oh, my goodness. That's the one thing you can't do. These politicians have been sitting on their butts in these communities for 60 years while Conditions continue to deteriorate, and yet no one calls them to account. And they have the the temerity to call someone who points out that these conditions need to improve racist or white supremacist. Well, and it's not just the...
2: It's not just the conditions, Pete. What they're doing is they are taking his language and changing it uh, from what he said to something else in Wait. order to prove racism. He talks Troll about the rat infestation, and they say, oh... You use the word infested or infestation. You don't really mean infest, infested with rats. You mean it's infested with brown and black people. He never, ever, ever even suggested anything of the sort. Speaking solely about the problem in Baltimore of the rodent infestation, they change the language. They say, you meant brown people. Then they state it. As a matter of fact, not suggesting maybe he meant that, they state it, and as long as you repeat the lie often enough, the the perception becomes reality in the minds of those who are too lazy to go look for the truth.
3: Yeah, in the past, when you told a lie that big, even the mainstream media that tilts demonstrably to the left would have called them out on that. Maybe not in a, in a very aggressive way, but they would have corrected the record. They're no longer doing that. No. They're complicit in perpetuating the lie. They have sat by silently as... Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and others have perpetuated the Ferguson lie. As of yesterday, I only knew of two sites, left-leaning sites that had corrected the record. One was Vox and one was another, but you didn't hear that on MSNBC, CNN, ABC, CBS. Mainstream media just allows them to say these things with impunity, don't even gently try to correct the record at all, and after a while, you know, it's the big lie theory. You tell a lie often enough and big enough, and pretty soon it becomes fact in the minds of many people, because most people are going about their daily business, they don't have time to fact check these folks. They are presuming, in the main and good faith, that these people are telling the truth. Yeah, maybe with a little bit of embellishment for political effect, but not out to flat out lie, and then the so-called arbiters of the truth, the mainstream media, don't say a thing about it. And Elizabeth Warren did the exact same thing with respect to Charlottesville and the Democratic claim and the mainstream media claim that Trump was saying there were good people on on both sides and referring to the neo-Nazis, and that's precisely, if you look at the transcript of what he said, that is not at all what he said. A number of people have pointed that out, but nonetheless. Not only is that not
2: what he said, he specifically said the opposite. He specifically said neo-Nazis and white supremacists should be condemned totally. And by the way, if you haven't seen it, Pete, I know you're a big fan of PragerU as I am as well. There's a great video narrated by Steve Cortez for PragerU of CNN, by the way, Steve Cortez is, uh, in which he has all of the exact facts and the audio of what you were talking about to disprove the Charlottesville lie. Sorry, go ahead.
3: Yeah, and I heard about that. I didn't see it. The problem we've got now is a complete buy-in by the cultural, quote-unquote, self-appointed elites where you've got the media, you've got various cultural institutions, a huge portion of the educational establishment have all decided they're going to take sides regardless of the facts. They don't care about facts, even when the facts prove the opposite of what they're trying to assert. And even when adherence to something other than these facts make things worse and not just worse, but dangerous and deadly for the claimed people they want to represent or help the- It has gotten to a ridiculous point in this country. The good news is we have got a majority of the country, at least for now, that are good willed people who appreciate the truth, who don't engage in fiction. Remember when, just, I think it was, what was it, over the weekend, Bob, when Joe Biden came out and said, you know, talking about Democrats, you know, we believe in unity, not division. We believe in science, not fiction. We believe in truth, not facts. facts. (laughs) You know? (laughs) And by the way, the same guy, as long as you hit that, Steve,
2: or uh, Peter, let me hit this. Uh, Joe Biden said, we believe in science, not fiction. Then when asked how many genders there are, he said right. at least three. At least three. <laughs> Show me the science. There you go. Show me there the you science go. of three genders. And everyone's
3: petrified. Everyone's petrified to call him on it. Very few people come out and say, what the heck are you talking about? They simply let it go. I think some people let it go because of political agenda. Some people are just, they're looking out for their backs. They're petrified because they've seen what other people have said, have happened to other people, careers damaged and destroyed when, you know, you make certain, you state certain fundamental truths. So I think, and just to repeat myself, the problem we've got now is buy in from almost every cultural institution. In this country, not just cultural institution, but economic institution, you've got these, these woke corporations who have taken the not just the left's position, but a far-left position unquestioningly and without fidelity to the facts. And that's going to be harmful on a go-forward basis. We don't know what the echo effect is going to be, although we can predict it to some extent. Yeah. But what we can see from the echo effect of Ferguson – Is one example. The echo effect of Baltimore is another example, but this complete cultural corruption that we've seen, I'm concerned about the echo effect from that, not just now, but years and decades from now, and it's not going to be good.
2: Pete, before you go, real quick, since you brought up people are afraid to call out Joe Biden because of what might happen to them, um, the language of that just reminded me <laughs> of the Epstein case. Um, your thoughts on, uh, on what happened? Uh, was he suicided? Yeah,
3: Bob, or my are thoughts not are... Yeah, I'm I'm not ready to, because, look, I'm a lawyer. I wait until the facts come out. It, are there a lot of weird and suspicious things without question? My goodness, this is bizarre. You know, uh, Tom Clancy, one piece of, of advice I took from Tom Clancy, he didn't give it to me directly, he gave it to everybody. Um, in writing my books, Is he said, in order to write a thriller fiction, your premise has to be plausible. It's got to be plausible. If... Someone went out there and tried to write a novel about what happened with Epstein. It would get rejected by publishers as being, "Eh, "This is too far-fetched. This is too simplistic. You know, this is this sounds like something from the 1920 novel writers. You know, you can't do something like this anymore. There are just too many weird circumstances here." But you know, I'll wait until the investigation is conducted before there's any kind of commentary on it. All I'll say is, when you look at the list of people around the Clintons who've gone bye-bye, it's pretty interesting because I, you know, I look at the list of people around me and don't have anything even remotely comparable to that <laughs> that's exactly how i felt about it that's how i approached it in
2: the first segment today and i didn't even talk about yesterday I, all i will say is because i don't want to be part of that peddling you know conspiracy stuff but there right. is a long list of people whose ends have come after close proximity to and oftentimes crossing the clintons enough that make you wonder what's happening here when Bill Clinton, according to multiple flight logs, has taken 27 trips on the Predator Party plane of uh, Jeffrey Epstein, and it just it just has to make you wonder. And that's what well, we'll leave it at wondering rather than supposing. Peter Kersenow, always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you for all the great work that you do. We'll talk to you again very soon.
3: Feeling dangerous, Bob. Talk to you later.
2: Love it. So am I. There you go. Peter Kersenow, 1049. We'll get a final time out here and come back in with a few more phone calls on AM 1420 VNs. All right, 1053, got time for a couple more phone calls before the top of the hour. Then we take you to Mike Gallagher, who takes you to Dennis Prager, who takes you to the glorious Dr. G, Jay Sekulow Live, Larry Elder. Stay here for the best news and conservative talk on AM 1420, The Answer. Let's go to TJ in Cleveland. TJ, go ahead, sir. Thanks for your long wait. Go ahead. TJ. It was too long of a wait. He walked away from the phone and put me on speaker, and he's listening to it in a seven-second delay. He'll realize in just a moment that uh, he was almost on. I'll put you on hold rather than disconnect. I'll try to come back to you, TJ. Todd in Cleveland. Are you there, Todd?
4: I am. Yo, Bob. my friend. Go ahead, sir. The population in 1930 was 123 million. That's that's the one-third that he was referencing when he was comparing the population to the um, number of Ku Klux Klan members. What he didn't acknowledge in his commentary was this. A lot of white supremacists that do exist um, learn from the Ku Klux Klan because their their breakdown was well-documented, and a lot of people that are white supremacists got enough sense not to be in established groups. I don't know what the population is of them, but I do know there's a lot of them for sure. And I could say this. Much of what Peter was talking about in his broadcast was leading to what I said to you before. If people would be more strict in their language in the clear definition of terms, mm-hmm. it would not be so easy for people to fall for the loose um definitions that people give. Somebody beats down a bunch of Jewish guys doesn't mean it's a hate crime. Some somebody somebody who um claims to be um one gender or the other it doesn't mean that they they have hatred for the one that they're not claiming to be a part of. These are things that Peter were t- was talking about indirectly. We need to be more strict in our language so that we can move forward. But that's and not up to record. us, Todd.
2: Todd, that's uh, not up to us. That's you know that 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 determination about what's a hate crime and what in what qualifies for hate if you are this instead of that or if you say this instead of that that has been determined by the left. That has been determined by the media. That has been ter- be. been determined by the courts as well. No, but I mean it if, be. If, that's if, the if point. I, I agree with you, but we. My point is, Peter can't change that. I can't change that. We can't change that because we don't hold that po- that power over the uh, the masses. That is but there what the is media there's one thing has done. you
4: can do. There's one thing you can do, and that That's is it. you could hold up you could hold up the pursuit of strict language that applies to actual terms. And let me say this: the exit. I thought it was kind of amusing too when um, when Biden was like, "Well, there are at least three genders. I thought that was amusing too. Come it on, it was very funny. Come on, yeah.
2: man. All right. Let's, let's... <laughs> yeah. Well, the best part is, of course, when the, uh, well, two things. The girl who asked him that question then asked him when he said three, she said, Can you name them? <laughs> What's he going to say? <laughs> Excuse me. What's he going to say? You know, male, female, and uh, so instead, he grabs her by the arm. Excuse me again. I, I laughed myself into a cough. He grabs her by the arm and pulls her in and says, Don't mess with me, kid. And then says, I was the first to come out for marriage, the very first. And I'm assuming he means gay marriage, of course, same-sex marriage. So don't mess with me. If Donald Trump had grabbed a young girl, an intern she was, by the way, for Turning Point USA, if Donald Trump had grabbed a young girl by the arm and leaned in aggressively and said, don't mess with me, holy God, they would be fitting him for a cell at Gitmo right now. But creepy, grabby Joe does it in an aggressive tone, and it's silence, radio silence by the mainstream media. Unbelievable. I'm just glad you brought that up, Todd. Thank you. Uh, TJ. Oh, going back to TJ. Let's see if this works this time. Are you there, TJ?
5: Yeah, I'm there. Okay, yeah, but you know, go Bob, ahead. I, I just wanted to tell you, I don't know if you realize how difficult it is to be a caller. You know, you have a point of view, <laughs> and you're given approximately a minute or less to get a point of view across. And then if the host doesn't agree with you, you have no time usually to do any rebuttal, like yesterday. That kind of upset me a little bit. You and I disagreed on taking the high road or the low road, you know, to fight this war that we're in. Well, we disagree, okay? And I would prefer to take any road that means victory. I don't care if it's the low road. If I got to get down in the trenches and be dirtier and nastier than them, I'll do it to win. And... I just wanted to. I say don't have sometimes. a
2: problem with getting dirty, TJ either. Um, and you and I have had many, many long conversations on the radio. I You and I have talked all, a lot. You're a regular, and sometimes we talk for thirty seconds. Sometimes we talk for three and a half minutes, which is an eternity in talk radio land. By the way, the typical talk radio phone call doesn't last longer than forty five seconds. You can check that across the board: national shows, local shows, or anything else. I don't mind getting dirty, TJ, but I don't like the idea of saying things that put us in the same. Uh, the same cesspool of filth as as the left, especially if I don't find it to be helpful. And we did disagree on that yesterday, and I disagreed with you respectfully. But uh, but I'm just telling you, there's some things that I I don't like being spread on my program because uh, you know what people will do, TJ. You're a friend, but people will say on the Bob Show, I heard blank and they don't care if they heard it from a caller or the host it will just be attributed to my show so there are some things where I got to kind of you know I got to kind of put the cap on I I think for the purposes of of productive discussion go ahead TJ
5: yeah well I mean I agree with you there and and truthfully Bob like you said it is your show Uh, people don't tame me for my opinion so, I mean, you know, I, I really don't care what they think one way or the other. But I can and, and I respect you're coming that. from a different, you and, know. And
2: I respect that. And I respect your opinion, too, TJ. And I, and I, and I got a jet here because Mike Gallagher's coming up. But thanks for the phone call. We'll talk again very soon, as we always do. Gallagher next on AM 1420 The Answer. We'll see you.